passed. Jamie Dimon's Gulfstream airplane, 32 hours in Hong Kong, he's exempt. That must raise a red flag. I mean, but at the same time, I think you have to praise Jamie Dimon for coming to Hong Kong. Okay. Well, we were pleased to see him, of course. We didn't see him personally, but we were pleased he was here. Thank you all very much. You heard there our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood, over in Washington. Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. Lashar, Chief Asia Economist at BBVA Research. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And after all of that, let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. Uh, in Australia, the ASX 200 is down 0.2%. In Japan, uh, the Nikkei 225 is flat. Cosby pretty well flat in South Korea as well. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about a third of a percent lower. Uh, not much movement in commodities prices. Brent crude oil, $82.30 a barrel. Gold trading at $1,853 an ounce. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Jim Gordon and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine. Maximum temperature around 27 degrees. The outlook is for sunny periods in the next few days and it's going to be warm during the day. Temperature right now 23 degrees, 76% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31, here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. Gas prices in Europe have surged almost 10% after the German authorities suspended the certification of the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline under the Baltic Sea. The project is expected to double the amount of gas that Russia sells to Europe. The BBC's Jonathan Josephs reports. The German regulator's decision has led to another jump in gas prices across Europe. They remain more than four times higher than they were at the start of this year. That's causing headaches for politicians across the continent as they try to keep their economies recovering from coronavirus. At the same time, they have to balance concerns that adding to an already high energy dependence on Russia will leave them more vulnerable to Moscow's influence. Meanwhile, the boss of one of the world's biggest commodity traders, Trafigura, has warned Europe doesn't have enough gas for the winter and is at risk of rolling blackouts. In local news, Food Panda Management and courier representatives look set to meet again tomorrow after failing to reach a consensus to avoid further strike action following hours of talks. The workers say they're unhappy with the food delivery platform's decision to cut delivery fees and suspensions triggered by customer complaints. Wasak Fida helped manage last weekend's industrial action, which disrupted deliveries in Chimsa Choi and Tokwa One. He was speaking yesterday evening. They are not promising. They are giving us good offers, uh, some incentives and some bonuses, but we are not agree on the bonuses. We need some surety for our basics. Bonuses like just for the company competition with other companies. When they need it, they, they give us bonus. So we don't need the bonus. So we are asking for our basic surety. Earlier this week, Food Panda said cutting base service fees for certain districts did not necessarily mean workers would earn less. The Reuters News Agency says the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, Tara Joseph, is resigning. Ms Joseph reportedly made the move over the strict quarantine requirements here. She's currently said to be in the United States. Robert Kemp has more. Ms Joseph was quoted as saying it was not in her nature to advocate on something, such as the easing of quarantine, and then embark on it like a stooge. But she said Hong Kong would nevertheless appeal to people who don't mind the new normal, saying there was always potential here. 
Ms Joseph, a former Reuters journalist, has been appealing to the SCR government on behalf of chamber members to ease Hong Kong's quarantine rules. She said she would remain at the helm for six months while the chamber finds a new president. RTHK has attempted to contact Ms Joseph for comment. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, yesterday's virtual meeting between President Xi Jinping and his US counterpart, Joe Biden. The Foreign Ministry described the talks as candid, constructive, substantive and fruitful, while the White House said the two leaders had respectful and straightforward discussions on a number of issues, including uh, Taiwan, Xinjiang, Tibet and Hong Kong. President Xi said the two nations need to increase communication and cooperation and uphold mutual respect and peaceful coexistence. President Biden said the two sides needed to establish guardrails and ensure that competition didn't veer off into conflict, intended or unintended. After 9.15, we're turning our attention back locally and looking at the latest uh, pay trend survey by ECA International. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Joining us uh, on the line, we have uh, Alejandro Reyes, uh, Director of Knowledge Dissemination and Professor at the Asia Global Institute at the University of Hong Kong. And also Ho Lok San, uh, Director of the Pansu Tong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. And also on the line, Ben Cavender, Managing Director at China Market Research Group uh, in Shanghai. Um, good morning to you all. Perhaps, uh, 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 Alexander Reyes, if we could start with you. So the, the tone of the meeting, the response, uh, the reaction afterwards, uh, all seems pretty positive. Uh, can we now look forward to better uh, China-U.S. relations? Where we've come uh, ten months ago, you know, ten months into the Biden administration, um, you know, you had the years of Trump where there was a lot of bitterness, a tariff, trade war, and um, a lot of uh, the, that wolf warrior rhetoric exchange on both sides. And uh, now you've um, you, you have a situation where there seems to be emerging a framework for relations between the United States and China now. President Biden had articulated a kind of three-lane framework where there was cooperation on one lane, particularly with, in areas such as climate change, uh, competition another lane in areas such as technology, and then confrontation or con uh, in another lane, a third lane, in areas like human rights. And um, that seems to be the framework that the uh, White House administration is working on, and the question was whether China would, would, would um, kind of work within that kind of framework. And it does seem to be working in the sense that if you go back just uh, in the spring when we had the meeting between Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan with the Chinese counterparts in Anchorage and the bitterness that was the, the public um, recommendations on both sides, then a more low-key meeting of Jake Sullivan uh, and his uh, counterpart, uh, Yang Jiqi, in, um, in Switzerland. And then now the, at the top, where 
you know, leaders have kind of brought the tensions down and the three and a half plus hours, uh, clearly, again, an emerging framework of discussion. So rather than a deep freeze, we see discussions, uh, Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade representative, having talks, Janet Yellen, the Treasury um, Secretary, having talks with her counterpart, um, Secretary Raimondi of Commerce also having talks with her counterpart. And there seems to be also military, mill-to-mill, um, communication. So on the whole, I would say that there is some kind of emerging framework for moving forward the discussions. And then lastly, I would point to um, the climate discussions uh, between John Kerry and his counterpart, in particular, the statement that they issued at the COP26 in Glasgow, which I think is a very interesting statement about how they need to accelerate cooperation on climate efforts in this uh, important decade, the 20s. So do you think we can all breathe a little easier after this summit? Well, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, clearly there are big differences, like over Taiwan and uh, I'm sure on human rights. And certainly, the, um, you know, there's reason to breathe easier. But I, I, I think uh, <laughs> we do so at our peril if we're, if we're going to just rely on, on one three-and-a-half-hour encounter on Zoom. Um, to, to make us uh, breathe uh, that much easier. I, I think this will be a very, very difficult relationship going forward and, and, and certainly uh, into the, um, in, over the next uh, several years. So, um, and I, I would argue, too, that you know, the Chinese are, are, are looking at the um, American political situation and uh, there is a pathway for the return of uh, Donald Trump or people like him uh, to the administration. Certainly um, next year with the midterms, the Republicans could take over and the climate could change completely. So um, it may be that they are motivated at this time by looking a little bit forward and wondering, could the Republicans be back? Could Donald Trump himself be back uh, in 2025? Right. So so there is um, there is some calculation going on there. So how would that affect their, uh, you know, the optics of what they're seen to be doing now then, given that this could be a very short-term relationship? Well, it's make hay while the sun shines, because I think, in my mind, the, um, Beijing will, will look at Biden and say, well, it's much easier to work with uh, someone who's somewhat predictable and has a game plan rather than a uh, Trump or Trumpist people who um, are not necessarily working off of any game plan and who might indeed, in terms of diplomacy, be rather rank amateurs uh, and more prone to rhetoric and being uh, an ideology, an imposing ideology, or whatever they pass for ideology uh, as diplomacy. So um, I would expect that they would think, well, um, Perhaps this uh, Biden is, uh, is the person to work with and that he may, you know, we don't even know if Biden is going to uh, run again. OK, well, well let's go to uh, Ben Cavender in a moment. But first of all, um, uh, Holok Sang, uh, good morning to you. Uh, good morning. So, uh, so do you agree with that? The, you know, the mainland would rather deal with somebody like uh, Biden than Trump? Well, um, I think there's more sanity, you know, with, with Biden than, than Trump. Uh, Biden at least uh, has uh, kind of forward-looking and uh, looking at the big picture. And so I, I think, um, as a matter of fact, I am pretty optimistic that uh, that America is going to 
actually take up, uh, take off some of those tariffs uh, before long. But uh, of course, they uh, Biden is not in a position to to say anything like that or give it, give it any sign like that because that would be a sign of weakness. But uh, and I think uh, it's dictated by domestic politics, you know. So so it will uh, take a bit of time. But uh, as far as I can see, uh, there's some kind of urgency, you know, in for America because. Uh, Inflation is now at a 30-year high, and it's very dangerous, you know, for for America, because um, if interest uh, if, if interest rates have to go up uh, to uh, hold down inflation, uh, and uh, Treasury bond yields go go very high, then it's not sustainable, you know, because uh, given the very heavy debt load. Uh, the expenses, you know, on interest payments will actually uh, take out any room for a maneuver, you know, on fiscal policy side, in particular because there's such urgent need to uh, upgrade the infrastructure, you know, to, to do the repair and so on. You know, the maintenance bill is so huge, you know, so, so it's very... Um, uh, Biden can see that urgency. So uh, Biden understands that the tariffs actually add to the inflation and of course uh, the the hold up because of the uh, you know the the, uh, the shipping problems logistics problems that uh, that is uh, adding uh, fuel to oil or, or, or oil oil to fire so 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 I think um, it's uh, important you know for the two countries to, to work together and Biden understands that uh, China can help reduce inflation pressures on, on uh, in America, and that will actually take uh, away a very uh, uh, big uh, uh, yeah. risk. You know. Okay. Okay. Well, also with us is uh, Ben Cavender in Shanghai. Uh, good morning to you. Ben Cavender, Managing Director of China Market Research Group. Uh, the markets reacted uh, quite positively to uh, yesterday's uh, virtual meeting. So would you now expect uh, better trade relations going forward? And what do you think about uh, what uh, uh, Professor Ho was saying just then about tariffs? Well, you know, I think my takeaway from the, the discussion that happened yesterday was really no bad news is good news. I, I think the fact that the two sides are talking in a more formal, more open capacity should definitely be taken as a good sign. Um, having said that, I don't think that we reached any kind of substantive gains yesterday, nor do I think that that was expected. I, I think what both sides are probably hoping for now is can we find a way to work together on issues that are critical to the economy while at the same time being able to continue to disagree on, on fundamental issues that the, the two sides disagree on and probably aren't really going to shift on very much. As far as the economy goes, I think both countries are in a little bit of a precarious position right now. Um, you know, inflation in the U.S. was just mentioned, and that certainly is a very big problem right now. I think on the Chinese side also, uh, there are some structural issues going on with, with over-leverage um, within the real estate sector and, and at the you know, municipal level in the country. So, so those are all issues that need to be dealt with. I think that we will likely see discussion going forward about how maybe some tariffs can be rolled back or maybe some more exemptions are put in place, as well as um, on the Chinese side probably following through on some of their pledges um, related to, to purchasing certain products from the U.S. So I think we'll see some gains there. Um, 
Uh, I don't know how strong those gains are going to be. I do think there's this longer-term question of who's in power in the U.S. In the next, uh, after the next election cycle. Um, but, but overall, we're, we're moving in the right direction. I think the market should be calmed by what happened yesterday, and I, I think that this is a very good first step, but it's just a first step. So what would you think uh, would be the next logical step then? Well, I, I think we'd like to see probably you know, a concrete framework actually get rolled out in terms of how tariffs can actually be completely rolled back, um, if that's even possible. I think it would be a long time before we actually get to that place. I, I think both sides are sort of posturing and don't want to be seen as being um, weak right now. But I think that'll be one thing. I think the other thing is what concrete concessions are we going to see? I mean, there's been talk about China allowing some of the Boeing planes to, to fly again, um, which would be sort of seen as a big political win for the U.S. So I, I think you can see the steps happening in the distance, but it's probably going to be a number of months before we actually get anything down on paper. Mm -hmm. um, Alejandro Reyes, uh, um, how important do you think is the, the, the personal relationship uh, between the two leaders? Uh, can I just add that, um, you know, I actually think on the tariffs uh, issue, on the trade war, that, that may be the area that might disappoint most, uh, because while um, uh, Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade representative, has um, tried to damp down the talk of decoupling, uh, and then there is talk now, of, uh, 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 as uh, Mahoney said, um, um, exemptions on certain tariffs, um, I don't see any real improvement, particularly given that on the phase one trade agreement that was concluded at the Trump, um, there's disappointment in uh, China's ability to maintain the commitments. I think only about 62, 63% of the uh, purchases they had committed to. In any case, I think the personal relation is very important. I mean, they know each other. They've traveled together. Uh, Biden and uh, she have, uh, have spent so much time together. But I understand in their previous um, phone call, and um, I don't know in this particular um, uh, meeting, uh, they were in some ways trying to outdo each other in saying, well, I remember when you said this. I remember when we were together. I mean, they kept on trying to uh, out-reminisce each other, which I think is a very good thing because it does suggest that um, there is some impact when you bring the, uh, the two leaders at the top um, to sort out problems that haven't been sorted out at lower levels. Mm. Mm. Uh, Anna, sorry? Well, it's an interesting case, isn't it? it? It seems there's a different tone to this. I mean, humans are the only species that follows an unstable leader, and I don't think we could have called Donald Trump stable, and I think <laughs> I, I, think I sensed a, a, a nervousness on the China side that is missing now. I think they're much more confident it seems calmer somehow just much less stressful all around and then real relationships can develop the alternative is that they can't develop in an unstable atmosphere well i i think you're right but look biden has been around a long long while um he was uh, chairman of the foreign relations committee and and, and in that and, and he was vice president so in those roles he had long and and and, and, and deep interaction with chinese counterparts and chinese officials so i think that's really very important i mean it's not the kind of air sets relationship that donald trump used to tout about how xi jinping is his good friend and, and kim jong-un is his pal whatever or they're in love i mean this is Real, real knowledge of each other and, um, and what they stand for. And indeed, 
Um, I, I understand from uh, you know, listening to the debrief that uh, Jake Sullivan gave to um, uh, the Brookings Institution uh, last night that um, they, they were referencing what uh, the others said, you know, years ago. Uh, remember, you know, from memory or from their briefing points, right? So, so that I think is really very important, and, and it changes the tenor uh, completely of the. But again, this is at the top. The, the proof of the pudding is what can be done at lower levels to put forward a framework or move forward a framework, particularly in that collaborative lane: uh, climate change, um, anti-narcotics. And, and issues like that, uh, the pandemic, uh, vaccinations, and things like that, uh, public health. That's the will be the proof of the pudding will be. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Sang. Yes, uh, yeah. yes. Let me explain why I am uh, pretty optimistic about the tariffs. Uh, first of all, uh, taking away some of those tariffs is uh, is a very important step, you know, to uh, uh, reduce the inflation pressures in America. Uh, it will help definitely. It will help. And, uh, but uh, it will have to be conditional on something, you know, because uh, in, in, in terms of real politics, you know, you, you, you have to, to allow American uh, people to see that uh, this is not a sign of weakness, but it actually it's a, it's a result of some kind of bargaining. And so I would expect that uh, on the Chinese side, um, China is going to uh, step up its purchases of American goods. And, and then that will be followed, you know, by, by, by taking away some of those, those tariffs, you know, because it's in, in interest of America itself, you know, to reduce those tariffs. It has been uh, clearly demonstrated in multiple reports that the tar- uh, tariffs were um, counterproductive, you know, in, in, in many ways, and it's the consumers who are footing the bill. So, so it's uh, actually imperative, you know, for America at this juncture to reduce those tariffs as quickly as possible. But um, it has to be seen in a good light. So I think uh, China is going to step first, to take the first step, you know, stepping up the purchases of American goods, and then that will be followed you know, by, by uh, reducing tariffs. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this will, will, will be a win-win kind of situation. And I, I don't think we need to wait too long you know, for that to happen. Because the balance of trade is hugely weighted in China's favour, isn't it? They export far more to the US than the other way around. So are we just yeah. playing games really here? Yeah, you, you see the, uh, the irony is that uh, after uh, Trump had uh, uh, put in so, mu- uh, so many tariffs, actually the trade balance was getting worse. Mm. It didn't help at all. You know, there's no evidence whatsoever that the tariffs ever helped. You see... Um, in particular, because uh, um, uh, America, you know, you know, based on those sanctions, is actually stopping a lot of uh, purchases, you know, on the uh, from, from China uh, uh, um, of American goods. So, so they they have to look at it in uh, again uh, at a, at a whole picture, you know, because uh, a lot of those uh, um, um, uh, um, you know broken links in the in the global supply chain has to do with uh, this uh, uh, so-called decoupling between America and China. You know, it just doesn't work. Mm. So, Professor Ho, the Taiwan situation, which is kind of the elephant in the room, isn't it? Do you think, yeah. do you think both sides are smart enough 
I'm sure, um, I, I think um, President Xi is definitely smart enough. Do you think the Americans yeah. are smart enough to not rattle that cage? Uh, yes, I think that's imperative, you know, because uh, it's in no, nobody's interest, you know, to, 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 to start a, a hot war, you know. And uh, uh, it could happen, you know, if something uh, uh, um, more drastic, you know, in terms of uh, um, um, uh, Taiwan independence, you know, that's something that, that, that definitely no Chinese leader can ever tolerate, you know. So, so I'm pretty sure uh, the, the public opinion and also the opinion from the military side in, uh, in China is not going to allow any further... Uh, uh, um, uh, movement in that direction is just too dangerous. You know? So, so, so I think she uh, had made that very clear, and I hope that uh, um, uh, Biden had taken uh, note of that. Okay. Uh, well, let's uh, let's just go back to uh, Ben Cavender because I know you're only with us until nine o'clock. Um, but it's also reported that uh, President Xi said that Beijing would set up uh, would uh, sorry. Uh, step up economic cooperation with the U.S. and had agreed to create a, a fast track for American business people to enter the mainland. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think that this probably, you know, dances around the discussion of what's going to happen with, with COVID protocols, vaccine protocols, what the process is going to be for, for getting people in. I think we're already kind of moving in that direction um, as of uh, about two months ago, when they eased some of the rules for Americans with residence permits to be able to fly back without going through a, a laborious pre-approvals process. Of course, they still have to go through quarantine. Um, I think the reality is until there's some kind of uh, agreement regarding vaccines that the quarantines are going to stay in place. Um, just the situation on the ground here with COVID cases is such that uh, China still seems to be trying to maintain a zero case policy, if at all possible. Um, until they roll back on that, I don't think they're going to all of a sudden be allowing American business people to you know, skip the quarantine process. But I do think we're going to get to a point very soon where the actual visa approval process is streamlined, where there's maybe a portal that people can apply through much more quickly and where approvals are granted much more quickly. Because right now, the communication process is very vague. People submit applications. They might wait for weeks before hearing any kind of response as to whether or not they've been rejected or accepted. So I think that that's going to be clarified, but the actual protocol for coming back is still going to be quite tricky. So you're in Shanghai, Ben. I mean, we're not really hearing what's happening up there. Do you have people coming in and out of China for business reasons, or is that all closed? I, you know, I know a few people that have made three or four trips over the last 12 to 15 months and have had to do three weeks of quarantine every time that they've done it. And they've done it because they've had to have those face-to-face meetings. But it really is quite tricky. I think almost every company that we work with or that we've spoken to in the last year has basically said that um, they pretty much have cut business travel back to zero as far as international travel goes. And then even domestically, actually, um, it's quite a tricky situation because um, there's a lot of worry that if you travel to Beijing or you travel to another city and there's a case there that you'll get stuck. And so, so actually travel from a business perspective is almost at a standstill right now. Um, and, and I don't think that's going to be uh, getting better here until there's a lot more clarification on the China side, even domestically, for what protocols are going to be going forward. Um, given the world we live in now. So do you think this will cause a seismic change to this whole idea of doing business and that instead of having overseas people coming in and out, that uh, American companies in particular will start to base people in China permanently? Oh, 
I, I think there's already been a big shift. I think what we've seen through COVID is that a lot of major U.S. companies have accelerated plans to further localize their, their C-suites in China. So there's been a lot of turnover in senior executive ranks with the new CEO, COO, CFO, CMO, et cetera, now being Chinese nationals right. because of this problem with families not being able to get back and forth easily. And I, I think that trend's going to continue. Hmm. Uh, yeah, um, so let me see. We've got another couple of minutes before uh, we're coming up to the news uh, at nine o'clock. Um, we need to talk uh, a little bit more about uh, the Taiwan issue uh, j uh, just for about a minute or so. Um, Alejandro uh, Reyes, uh, how, how do you think from what we've heard as a result of the, uh, of the talks, how, how do you think that, uh, that Taiwan issue was approached by the two sides? One. I mean, it, it, it's very, I, I, I mean, the, the good thing, I think, was that they had a very frank exchange in the issue. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that there is an awareness that they have to prevent uh, any kind of um, accident or um, um, accidental confrontation yeah. uh, in mm -hmm. the area. So that's good. Um, I do think the, the big question for me or, uh, is about domestic politics, because a lot of what's driving the Taiwan issue, both in, the, in, in, in mainland and the United States, is domestic politics. And what is the temperature of that? How is that proceeding? Uh, particularly as we get to a, um, an election and the midterms, uh, what, will, what, what will it mean for the Biden administration in terms of its uh, room to maneuver on this issue? Yeah, sure. Okay. All right. Well, uh, stay with us. Um, thanks very much to uh, Ben Cavender, Managing Director with uh, China Market Research Group uh, in Shanghai. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call, 233 We'll be back at three minutes past nine. A quick look at the weather, mainly fine, top temperature today, 27 degrees. The outlook, sunny periods in the next few days, uh, currently 23 degrees, humidity 75%. <laughs> and six in the evening on Sunday to take a test by tomorrow. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Backchat with Anna Fenton and me, Jim Gould. And we're talking this morning about uh, yesterday's uh, virtual meeting between President Xi Jinping and his US counterpart, Joe Biden. Uh, we have with us uh, Alejandro Reyes, uh, Director of Knowledge Dissemination and Professor at the Asia Global Institute at uh, Hong Kong U. And also Holok San, Director of the Pan Sutong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. Um, and we're hoping to be joined uh, by uh, another uh, academic uh, expert uh, in the next few minutes. Uh, uh, we'll see uh, what happens there. But, um, but um, first of all, um, um, so Holok San, um, President Biden during the talk, uh, um, stressed the need to establish what he called some common sense guardrails uh, to make sure that there wasn't any uh, accidental uh, confrontation. Um, how do you think that might be achieved? Hello? Holoksang? Okay, okay. Holoksang is uh, not with us. Um, we do still have uh, uh, Alejandro Reyes. 
Yes. Yes. Hello. And Mahoney, Mahoney's uh, uh, also joined. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. Uh, also on the line. So uh, we have uh, Joseph Gregory Mahoney, a professor of politics and uh, director of the International Graduate Program in Politics at East China Normal University. Okay. Well. Well. Thank you for joining us, uh, Professor Mahoney. Perhaps if we can put that one to you, then how do you think those uh, those guardrails that President Biden talked about may be uh, established? You know, I think that uh, the, we, we saw really two different approaches, and I don't think that this was uh, too surprising because ever since Biden took office, he's been emphasizing uh, competition. Uh, and I think it's clear that we, uh, from what we've seen in terms of uh, the Blinken side of his foreign policy, that uh, there have been a lot of pressures, uh, the AUKUS, Indo-Pacific Quad, um, the movements in Taiwan, the placement of troops. Um, some reports of some secret submissions and submarine missions and so, so forth and so on. So, um, so things have been really heating up, and uh, uh, one might even argue that the U.S. has crossed some red lines in the meantime. Um, so I think this idea that he's, that he's returned uh, to this, this uh, rhetoric of guardrails is not surprising, uh, but it is a little disconcerting because uh, I don't think it's playing very well in Beijing. Well, don't you think that um, the Chinese side was probably a little um, <clears throat> alarmed by um, Biden's uh, slight faux pas a few weeks ago? And uh, isn't that an issue that Biden doesn't always uh, um, stick to the company line when he opens his mouth? You know, I, I, I'm one of these people who doesn't think that Biden is, is quite the buffoon that we, that we take him to be. Uh, I, think, I think he's been flirting uh, with, I think, I think the administration, certainly members of Congress, have been flirting with uh, whether or not strategic ambiguity is really still a thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have to, in, in my heart of hearts, I think that Biden likely let slip something that they're actually talking about in the office, as opposed to, you know, what they're supposed to be talking about publicly. That, that would be my larger concern, and I think that's confirmed by the, the troops in Taiwan. So yes, I do think that, that Beijing is very, very concerned. And I, I think this uh, explains in part uh, the biggest surprise for the, the summit, at least from my uh, viewpoint, which is that we saw no significant uh, movement on trade. Um, I think that uh, this, they're trying to use Taiwan as a leverage. Um, uh, you know, Beijing cannot allow that to bear fruit. And so... Um, um, uh, we saw nothing significant come out of last meeting, uh, last night's meeting about trade. Um, may maybe something will appear piecemeal in, in the coming weeks. Uh, you know, we're, we're hearing new things almost every hour now about little things that are coming out, so maybe they're going to play this up, but, but um, I'm not quite optimistic. So, you know, this is clearly a dance um, played out for, for domestic um, consumption on both sides as well as international. So how do you, sitting in China, see the gap between what happens on the global stage and what really happens at grassroots level? Well, I'm, I'm actually stuck in the United States yes. right now. Oh, you're in America. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But I, I think that uh, there was an article in South China Morning Post this morning that quoted Gail Lufton out of Washington, the Institute for Analysis for Global Security. And I think his assessment's correct, that the two leaders appear to have been talking past each other, that she was speaking uh, more to history, almost pleading with Biden to rise above the internal politics, while Biden persisted in trying to appeal to midterm voters, including China hawks, business interests, environmentalists, human rights 
groups and so on. So, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, that, that uh, Xi Jinping is in a very uh, comfortable position right now, a very confident position relative to Biden, um, I think is, is very clear. Although, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what Biden is really good at is sequencing and the fact that he was able to have uh, that big signing ceremony for his infrastructure bill that morning, um, uh, you know, we thought that this would give him some political capital so he would uh, uh, go in and deal a little more confidently with China, but that didn't, that didn't happen. All right. Now, you used the phrase strategic ambiguity a minute ago. What exactly do you mean by that? It's been a, a principle for some time that the United States would, you know, recognize the three communiques, the one China policy, but then we have this domestic law that requires the United States uh, um, uh, help Ch- uh, Taiwan defend itself. But how precisely that law is interpreted and what precisely a president chooses to do is largely up to the discretion of the president, uh, in part because Congress uh, constitutionally can't really hamstring uh, the president's uh, uh, form, uh, uh, power and foreign policy. Um, but over time, what we've seen is, is the emergence of this principle of strategic ambiguity. You know, it's not quite clear what uh, the United States would do if there was a conflict between Taiwan and China. And this has been something that has uh, helped support the status quo. So what do you so think would really happen? That- what do you think would really happen? To be honest with you, I don't think uh, the United States would go to war um, uh, over Taiwan. Um, to, to be frank, you know, if you look at uh, what the United States does with its allies and the Kurds or the Iraqis or the Afghans uh, or whomever, um, the, the, uh, the consequences of going to war with China would be catastrophic uh, for the United States at this time. Um, I don't think that China is particularly vulnerable um, to attack. They're, they're strongest on defense. Um, and uh, so, you know, we would, we would see the world going into a tailspin. I also don't think that China will preemptively attack Taiwan. The, the, the risks and the downside are too great for China, even if the U.S. didn't engage. Um, so it would, it would really have to be some sort of rogue military operation or, or something sparked in Taiwan itself. Mm. All right, so it's just brinkmanship as normal then. I don't think it's normal. I think I think it's really stepped up quite a bit, um, and and the risks are mounting for for accidents. Professor Reyes, so yeah. what do you think about that? Yes, I mean I I, I think Smalley um, is quite right. I mean I I, I do think that. Um, the key issue here is domestic politics. You know, I kept on thinking, you know, uh, when I was um, um, looking at, you know, what came out of this uh, virtual summit, was that both leaders have a lot in common in the sense that they look primarily at their domestic politics as a way to kind of inform what they do on the world stage and with each other. And um, I think there's, you know, the fact that uh, Biden did have that important um, infrastructure uh, bill to sign into law, um, and uh, Xi Jinping himself has just come out of a, um, an important party um, event that uh, uh, really consolidated his power and his role in uh, the, Can- uh, the, the Chinese firmament. Um, I think that this is um, clearly they're coming from different sides. And the Taiwan issue is really something that hues to both their domestic audiences. 
and that's important. And indeed, um, that could be uh, a trigger, if you will, for um, um, difficult action or action that one side or the other might take that would have um, really uh, catastrophic results. To what extent do you think your average American even knows where Taiwan is? <laughs> don't ask me those questions. <laughs> um, I don't think uh, the average Americans are, are, are all that aware. But, um, and, and, and hence the idea that would the United States go to war over Taiwan, mm. um, I think that that's, you know, uh, would that happen? I mean, Afghanistan was one thing, right? And um, uh, after 9-11, but if there were an incursion by the PRC, by the mainland into Taiwan, um, um, would would that motivate um, the United States? Uh, I think a lot would depend on the, the domestic politics, the situation uh, on the ground. And right now, I'm not sure that Americans would have any appetite. Apparently, uh, uh, Hong Kong was also uh, uh, discussed uh, uh, during the virtual summit. Um, I don't think we have any details, uh, but uh, how much do you think uh, Hong Kong is, uh, how much of an issue is it, uh, Professor Mahoney, in relations between the two sides? I think, I think it's a talking point, um, much less so, obviously, than, than Taiwan. Oh. <laughs> uh, Tibet was also raised, Xinjiang was raised, but... Uh, again, as you noted, there, there was no substance reported on this, and uh, we haven't heard, uh, we, we don't hear much in the American press these days about Hong Kong. We heard a lot earlier this year, but since things have quieted down a bit, uh, very little is, is heard. Uh, so uh, I don't think this is really um, a point that uh, uh, Biden is pressing. Uh, but, it, you know, then again, where there was this tremendous quote uh, that was reported in the Chinese press where Biden asked if the journalist had left the room yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, Anna, you were going to... Yeah. No, I was, just, I was just visualizing yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> One of those Biden moments, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay, so, um, so uh, Professor Reyes, uh, so, where do we go from here in uh, you know, U.S.-China relations? How, how, do you, how do you see things developing over the next uh, few years? Well, I mean, I'm actually more concerned <laughs> in the next few months, I suppose. Mm. Um, uh, well, I think if we move forward and both sides kind of um, shape this emerging framework where you do have the top leaders uh, talking uh, across all uh, issues, and you have the policy secretaries uh, and even the mill to mill, the military uh, talking. I think that that can only be a good thing. Now, this is not quite the strategic economic dialogue of the past, where you had a vast range of um, cabinet officials talking to their counterparts on both sides. Um, that hasn't yet materialized, and it's unlikely to materialize, but I think that's important. I, again, I, I would stress that the key here, in my view, coming, going up to the midterms next year and indeed the presidential election in 2024, is what is the impact of domestic politics, particularly, I have to worry more in some ways about the United States, because the United States domestic politics is so oddly unpredictable and so um, dysfunctional 
that uh, it would be difficult. Now, one other thing that I'm, I'm interested in is Biden, you know, has had looked at the world as divided between democracies and authoritarian regimes, and he's supposed to be convening a virtual um, alliance democracies meeting uh, next month. I'm not sure that going down that path of that kind of division uh, would be very helpful. I mean, whenever you're uh, putting forward values, even though you're really looking after interests, uh, I'm not sure it works very well. Professor Mahoney, uh, we'll give the last word to you before we uh, wind up uh, this part of the program this morning. You know, it was just reported uh, that Biden, one of the things that Biden asked she for was to release the oil reserves, you know, to help with gas prices uh, globally. Mm. Uh, Biden needs to resolve the trade war. He needs help uh, with inflation and uh, shortages. So I think if we don't see some sort of resolution on trade in the near term, uh, I think we have to conclude that Biden's strategy has failed. And he'll face the uncomfortable position of either backtracking in ways that will expose him politically at all, or he'll be forced to double down on containment, if not provocation. And both of these seem like unwin uh, unwinnable approaches to me, uh, and, and both uh, risk opening the door to uh, 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 Republicans retaking Congress next year, and perhaps the White House in three. And, you know, this this itself is not lost on Beijing, that this is also a type of extortion aimed at, uh, you know, you, you deal with us now or, or, or risk worse later. Okay, well, thanks a lot for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. That was uh, Joseph Gregory Mahoney, a Professor of Politics and Director of the International Graduate uh, uh, Programme in Politics at East China Normal University, and also uh, Alejandro Reyes, uh, Director of Knowledge Dissemination and Professor at the Asia Global Institute at Hong Kong University. And before nine o'clock, we heard from uh, Holok Sang, Director of the Pan Sutong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University and also on the line from Shanghai we had uh, Ben Cavender, Managing Director at China Market Research Group. And so for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme we're going to be turning our attention back locally and that is to the latest uh, uh, pay trend survey by ECA International um, uh, now, the highlights of this are that uh, salaries for uh, workers in Hong Kong are forecast to increase by 3.2% on average next year, and that's 0.7% higher uh, than for this year. And after factoring in inflation, the real salary increase in Hong Kong will be 1.1%, uh, uh, nearly double the real increase uh, seen this year. Uh, we have with us uh, on the line uh, Lee Quain, uh, Regional Director of Asia at uh, ECA International. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So, um, it sounds like uh, good news for employees, but, uh, but Hong Kong is still behind uh, other Asian economies, isn't it? Including uh, Singapore, Taiwan and uh, indeed mainland China. It is indeed. So, the 3.2% that you um, indicated for next year um, 
seems to be relatively good. Um, that's obviously also better than the 2.5% that we um, surveyed, or rather the surveyed participants indicated that they were going to be awarding to their staff this year. But as you rightly point out, um, although that shows an upward trend in salary um, increases both this year and next year, um, Hong Kong is still um, behind other locations in the region. Um, it is behind um, other locations in Greater China, such as um, Taiwan, as well as mainland China. So on, you can kind of look at it on the one hand as being good news for Hong Kong because we're seeing an upward um, trend in terms of recovery of uh, pay trends um, since um, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic last year. But um, salary growth is does seem to be relatively anemic in comparison to um, other locations in the Greater China region, as well as um, other kind of competitors of Hong Kong. Um, as you pointed out, uh, that includes Singapore. Now, this survey, we look at it every year, obviously, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it often seems to be that uh, that Hong Kong is behind uh, other economies, uh, 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 Singapore's often mentioned, and also, of course, uh, the mainland. Um, I, I mean, uh, in terms of a, a longer-term trend, is Hong Kong falling behind? Well, one thing to bear in mind here is that it's not so useful to compare salary growth rates in Hong Kong versus mainland China. Um, one of the reasons being is on the whole, um, salaries in mainland China generally tend to be uh, much lower than those that are awarded to workers here in Hong Kong. Um, so even though we're seeing growth rates of around 5 to 6% per year in China, for example, um, that even in spite of that, workers are still earning less than uh, their counterparts here in Hong Kong. If you're looking at comparing Hong Kong with comparable locations in the region, in terms of more developed, high-income economies, you're looking at places such as um, Japan, Singapore, Australia, and New Zealand. And in these locations, Hong Kong compares quite similarly, um, where growth rates of 2.5% this year compare quite favorably in comparison to places such as Japan and Australia, for example. The worrying thing is um, for Hong Kong's competitiveness is relative to somewhere such as Singapore, where historically, up until the onset of the social political tensions in 2019, salary growth in Hong Kong was typically higher than it was in Singapore. But that seems to have reversed since 2019 through to 2020. And now Hong Kong is behind um, Singapore and it's also now falling behind growth rates in Taiwan as well. So that would be a concern for employers um, in terms of trying to attract and retain staff. Well, the reality on the ground, I can tell you, is if you're trying to employ F&B staff at the moment, good luck to you. An awful lot of them left hospitality um, at the beginning of COVID and aren't in a rush to come back. So it's just going to be supply and demand, isn't it, no matter what these surveys say? It is true. So obviously, when we were doing this survey here, the survey was focusing on um, generally white-collar staff, um, office-based staff, at a kind of junior management, all the way up to um, 
senior management level. There are variations according to particular industries, and we do note from our research um, that there are certain industries where it is incredibly difficult at this point in time trying to find staff. And as you mentioned at the moment, the F&B sector is one where obviously um, that's particularly problematic um, because many of the staff who left at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, they probably found um, other um, opportunities elsewhere. And at the moment, it's just quite difficult to attract them to come back. So which are the sectors that are are doing uh, better here? So in terms of the sectors that we surveyed, um, we saw that the technology sector um, obviously um, is doing relatively well at the moment in terms of economically, and that translates into higher than average rates of growth in salaries for workers there. So whereas on the whole, we reported an increase of 2.5% for all people in Hong Kong, um, based on the 130 companies that participated in the survey, the uh, technology sector was reporting a general rate of increase of about 3% in um, in 2021. Um, On the other hand, um, sectors where we see rates being lower um, than the 2.5% witnessed overall in Hong Kong is understandably the transportation logistics sector, um, where in this sector we're seeing um, generally amongst white-collar staff a salary growth rate of around 1.5% in 2021. Um, of course, the the unemployment uh, situation, which was uh, uh, it, it, it's always been the, well, the employment situation has always been pretty good uh, in Hong Kong uh, for many many years. Uh, uh, we had a, a bit of an increase in unemployment uh, during the worst of the pandemic, but it's coming down now. Um, do you uh, how, how much of a factor do you think that's likely to be uh, next year? Um, I, I think that will have an impact because obviously salaries are influenced um, by, um, as was mentioned, supply and demand factors. So as unemployment rates reduce, that reduces the potential talent pool for companies to draw upon. And that means that companies obviously have to compete harder for talent. And one of the um, factors that they use to compete is obviously salaries. So we're expecting, based on our research, and as you indicated at the start, that salaries will um, increase to, sorry, the rate of growth will increase to 3.2% in Hong Kong next year. Now, this still remains below the pre-pandemic levels where we were seeing continually um, salary growth rates of around 4 to 4.5%. But this is also in line with a trend in terms of what we see after recessions. Normally, when it comes to recessions, you don't expect salary growth rates to return to their pre-recession level for three or four years uh, until after that recession has taken place. So even though we'll expect to see a 3.2% increase next year, it may well be another one or two years beyond that before we see um, growth rates um, return um, back to the 4 to 4.5% that we saw um, between the end of the global financial crisis and the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, because of the uh, the strict uh, quarantine measures that we have uh, here in Hong Kong, uh, uh, some businesses have uh, talked about uh, uh, locating some of their staff to other places. Uh, um, d- d- is that a factor in your calculations? Um, this isn't a factor. 
factor in our calculations in this particular survey. Um, the reason being is this is we're really just asking a simple question amongst um, our participation base, which is, are you expecting to increase salaries this year? If so, what's the increase rate and what's the increase rate next year? We haven't been asking questions such as what's their manpower planning? Are they expecting to, um, for example, increase their manpower in other locations in comparison to Hong Kong? So we haven't really looked at that in this survey, unfortunately. Um, what about um, do, do, do you actually? I'm just just having a look through the uh, the, the news release. Uh, does your uh, survey also cover Macau? It does indeed. Right. So Macau, we saw what suffered pretty badly last year um, due to the onset of the pandemic, where the vast majority of um, companies that responded to our survey indicated that they had frozen their. Uh, the salaries of their employees. So we recorded generally a 0% rate of pay growth last year. Mm. Um, however, Macau's um, bounced back this year. Um, so we've seen um, an increase of 2.5% this year, which was in line with what we see here in Hong Kong. And we're also see, expecting to see similar um, rates of growth that we see in Hong Kong next year as well. So we're expecting to see at least 3.2% in Macau as well next year. So that's, that seems to be relatively good news for, for Macau. But Macau, like Hong Kong, we're obviously... Um, victims of circumstance, so to speak. So um, the extent to which our economies in both Hong Kong and Macau um, can thrive are dependent on, ex on external factors. So in the case of Macau, um, that will be obviously a risk associated with that will be Macau's dependence on tourism and people coming in from both Hong Kong and um, obviously mainland China um, for the purposes of utilizing its um, leisure um, facilities. Okay. So because of that, that's going to obviously be a kind of like a headwind um, from Cal in terms of whether or not it can, um, salary growth can continue um, at, the, at a similar pace as what we've seen this year. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, Lee Quain there, Regional Director of Asia for ECA International. Um, thanks to our listeners. Um, thanks very much to you, Anna. You're welcome. And thank you to our producer, Yuki Jung. And uh, just before we go to the news summary and the weather, uh, uh, sorry, the news summary in Morning Brew, a quick look at the weather. It's going to be mainly fine. Uh, top temperature will be around 27 degrees, moderate east to northeasterly winds, occasionally fresh offshore. The outlook, sunny periods in the next few days, and it will be warm during the day, however, becoming appreciably cooler early next week. It's currently 23 degrees, humidity 74%. Bring your original Hong Kong ID card to cast your vote at the Legislative Council general election on December 19th. Electors have the right to keep their votes secret. Any person who uses an electronic communication device inside a polling station or disturbs other electors commits an offense. Electors must mark their ballot papers by themselves inside a voting compartment. If necessary, electors may seek help from the presiding officer to mark the ballot papers on their behalf, with a polling officer serving as a witness. For inquiries, please call 2891-1001. The news summary with Vicky Wong. Gas prices in Europe have surged almost 10% after the German authorities suspended the certification of the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline under the Baltic Sea. The project is expected to double the amount of gas that Russia sells to Europe.
Food Panda management and courier representatives look set to meet again tomorrow after failing to agree to a deal to avoid further strike action following hours of talks. Workers are protesting over the food delivery platform's decision to cut delivery fees. Food Panda said cutting base service fees for certain districts did not necessarily mean workers would earn less. And Hong Kong Disneyland says it will be closed today to ensure that employees can complete a COVID test. Yesterday, the government ordered anyone who'd been at the park between 11 in the morning and 6 in the evening on Sunday to take a test by tomorrow. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. 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 You're not too bad at all. Good morning. Maybe we are Scottish. Hello. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type vibes. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Welcome to Wednesday here on The Morning Brew. Well, it's classical music day with composer and conductor Colin Touchin. The maestro joins us, as usual, at 10.40 to tell you all about some of the most famous pieces of music that had somewhat rocky starts, well, publicly anyway. We'll hear about first performance riots, walkouts, dismissals, the works. Audiences have been easily offended at certain times in history. Particularly in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they weren't afraid to show it too. We're going to have music of a different kind for you after 11, as singer-songwriter Matt James will be with us to invite you to tonight's Shazza Music Showcase, which is happening at Peel Fresco. Of course, we're going to listen to some of his stuff too, it's really good. 11.40, live from Paris at dawn, RTL France's Philippe Dovar will join us for more chat and music, and Chris Watts will be back after 12 for our weekly cast, live from his Motion Dynamics studio in Central. Join Chris, as always, on Facebook Live, and feel free to ask him anything, pretty much, you like. Got the chilli peppers to get us going this morning. This is called Give It Away. Oh, here on Radio 3. 